Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. on top. This is your host, Auntie Vice. We're back in May for Erotic Performers Month, and today we have Shay Tizana with us. Shay is a performer. She instructs on rope and all sorts of great things. She has written two books, including Tying and Flying and Creating Captivating Courses. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to join you on the show. There's a lot of folks on here who will have seen at least one of your videos, even if they don't know who you are, because we have a lot of rope aficionados. You have a different approach to rope than a lot of people in that you do a lot of self-suspension. So let's talk about what that is and why why would you do this to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. Uh, I think, you know, anytime you start with anything, any type of kink play or activities, Starting with that question of intention is so key. Like, why are you interested in this? And that's going to really impact how you are playing, performing. Uh, so thinking through goals and intentions. Uh, when I started in rope, I started out exclusively bottoming. I started out doing, you know, bedroom rope, tie me up and do things to me kind of stuff, which, you know, was always hot and fun. The first few times I was tied up in suspension as a bottom, I felt like it was very intense. Suspension can be really, uh, there's a lot of intense sensation involved and it definitely takes some time to get used to. Uh, And also I was interested in exploring movement. I was put in the air by my riggers at the time and wanted to move around. I thought that was what was so interesting about being suspended. And my first couple riggers, I accidentally kicked in the head because they didn't seem to think I was going to move around in that way. And I sort of felt like I suspension bottoming in a traditional shibari sense didn't really connect with me very well. It wasn't really what I enjoyed uh, about doing rope. So I took a break from suspension bottoming. Then in 2012, I was put in a mobile suspension by someone named Not Steve. It was a puppet rig, which is very flippy, lots of dynamic movement. It's very driven by the person in rope to move in the rig. And it just changed my whole perception of myself as a rope bottom, as someone who was doing any type of uh, suspension bondage. And I didn't know anyone who was tying it. So I went home and immediately started trying to reverse engineer it. And based on pictures that I had, uh, tie it on myself so that I could do that rig again. And that was basically how I got into self-suspension. And it's been an amazing journey. And I, I just love it so very much. So you mentioned that, you know, as a traditional model, you were not expected to move around 
too much in the rig. It sounds almost like as self-suspension, you have a lot more agency and it's not such a submissive act as more of uh, you're getting something else out of it. Am I right? For sure. I mean, my really core kink is actually that I'm an exhibitionist. (laughs) So I love doing, uh, I love self-suspension because it lends itself very well to dynamic performance and the, which is the stuff that I really, really love. But some folks use self-suspension and self-bondage as more of a meditative ritual. You can definitely use it as part of partnered play. I will do that as well, where I self-suspend and then my partner will play with me in various ways because he's not really into suspension. It's it's not something you really can dabble in. It takes quite a lot of time, work, training. So he enjoys playing with me once I'm in the air though. So you talk about training and a lot of what you do when you're suspended is very gymnastic in its form. Were you a gymnast? Were you like a college athlete? I wasn't at all. Oh my gosh. I, I think, you know, like so many of us, I had so many traumatic experiences in, you know, high school gym class in all of the, I I really hated any type of movement until about my mid twenties and actually getting into self-suspension was what really motivated me to get into more Uh, more of that conditioning. And self-suspension is amazing because you can really meet yourself wherever you are. It doesn't have to be this athletic, ridiculous thing. That's just the way that I like to do it. But there's definitely styles of self-suspension that are very sustainable, that are focused on you making rope that is more... I feel like the word comfortable gets a bad rap, but I think comfortable is amazing. It's much harder to make rope suspension comfortable than it is to make it suck. Like It's pretty easy to make it suck. (laughs) So I think we should give a lot more props to you know comfortable suspension. Uh, But it's something that you can really modify to meet what your intentions are and what your physical needs are. So you mentioned it changed how you connect with your body and obviously doing something as physical as self-suspension, you have to be really tuned into your body. So how did you, how did, how you see and relate to yourself change the more you've delved into this practice? That's a great question. I have, a, you know, I guess to get, you know, personal and as a you know, content warning for you know, discussion of body image and eating disorder, but I have a long history of you know, eating disorders uh, all through middle school, high school, and I think for for me at least, connecting with first off the kink community, which I think is has been very healing for me in terms of body positivity. I feel much more comfortable running around a play space totally naked than I do out at a beach in a swimsuit, something like that. Uh, So that was very healing. And also getting into self-suspension and really seeing my body more in terms of what it could do instead of perhaps how I was looking or how things might be perceived in, you know, broader, uh, a broader context. So I think that for me was really important in helping with my own experience of uh, my, my body. And getting into the community, because it's one thing that so many of my listeners have expressed fear of, like, the first time you're in a dungeon, do you have to be naked? How is this going to go? And, like, they're they're terrified to be seen naked. And I think especially for female body folks, the idea of being naked in front of a group of people can be terrifying. So did you become an exhibitionist or is this just been part of it? 
I definitely didn't start out thinking that I was an exhibitionist. I'm actually a very, very shy person all through middle school, high school, college, like leave me alone. Let me read my books. I didn't want anything to do with anything. I I was in drama club in high school, I would say, just because that's where the queer kids were. So had to go hang out with the queer kids and, you know, be part of that community. But I was mostly a, you know, behind the scenes type for, for most of that. And really, it's, it's hard to say. I think it was always part of, you know, the, the things that I used to read with regards to kink were very much the Anne Rice Sleeping Beauty books, which have a lot of stuff about kind of public humiliation or public play. Um, I'm not necessarily into humiliation. A lot of what I do is much more focused on, you know, uh, instead of, so there's part of why I didn't connect with Shibari bottoming, I think to begin with is because that tends to be around more, um, things like humiliation, uh, and that doesn't work as well for me. A lot of what I do is very focused on more emotions like, you know, pride, joy, things like that. That's what I like to express with my, with my work. And of course that can go, you know, there's, there's a broad spectrum of experiences with all of these things, but I think getting into self-suspension, getting into play with my partner, Stefanos, who is extremely extroverted and extremely exhibitionist, uh, kind of was part of that introduction for me, I think. And how did you discover the kink community? Was it through the Anne Rice books or how did you end up you know, going from this kind of shy, introverted kid in high school and college to, oh, now I'm going to walk around in a pair of leggings and suspend myself while playing the harp, like, and posting that on social <laughs> media. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a transformation. So what, what got you into this community to start building that side of you? Yeah. So it was definitely always something I was interested in. I have no idea how I found the Sleeping Beauty books, but it was definitely something that was always part of my, you know, fantasies. And I think once I was, I, I came into the kink scene in Minneapolis, and they had a club night there, Bondage Gogo, which we also had here in San Francisco for a period of time. And so that was the main, you know, goth nightclub. I was such a geeky person, so you know, goth. The the Venn diagrams of you know, geeky, nerdy, and goth and kink are almost just a solid circle, right? So I started going out to Ground Zero. Bondage Gogo was one of their nights. They had a pro dom who would do scenes in the play area upstairs. Mm -hmm. And so I was always really intrigued by that. And from there, started talking with people in the community, going out to munches. And so that was more or less the entry point. Uh, everyone who knows my partner Stefanos finds it entertaining that like I dragged him to his first munch. He didn't, he wasn't part of the community at all mm-hmm. uh, until I was like, come on, let's go, let's go do this. <laughs> yeah, no, that for those listeners who know Stefanos, that, that will be surprising because now he's so outgoing and boisterous and mm-hmm. yes. Uh you talk about wanting to tap into more of the pride and the joy. And I think that gets missed in a lot of kink. We had Alice from Bondage Land on here talking about it, bringing the humor to that. And I think it gets missed because so much of popular representation of kink is this, you know, we're going to beat the submissive until they're crying and humiliate them. So 
other than self-suspension, how does that get expressed in the community and how does that tap into those feelings for you? I feel like for me, you know, this kink is the hot is my hobby. It's what I do for fun. And of course there's serious sides to it, but really I'm in this to have a good time and that can look like different things. Sometimes that might look like a more serious cathartic scene where I, a a lot of kink is really about freeing ourselves of that prefrontal control over our emotions so that we can more freely emote so that we can laugh, cry, scream, yell, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I think for me, a lot of times I like doing kinky games. I like playful scenes. I like silly predicaments. Uh, All of those things are part of that manifestation. And when I'm doing rope in a partnered sense, it's silly, collaborative lab time and just kind of having fun with it. So rope comes with a fair amount of risk. If you don't know what you're doing, you can seriously hurt yourself. And you put out a book, Tying and Flying. It's a different approach to rope. So do you want to talk a little bit about what's behind the book and how it differs from the other books on the market about rope? Sure. So the reason that I started teaching self-suspension, and I'm like all imposter syndrome all the time. I just have to tell you that up front. And so I never set out to be like, I'm going to write the book on Mm self-suspension. It was very much, I started teaching classes on self-suspension because when I started self-suspending, no one was teaching it. And I mean, I live in San Francisco, arguably the kink capital of the US, if not, you know, further out. And just there was no one teaching the topic. I went to partnered classes, tried to apply that information. On the national level, there was a few folks who were teaching some self-suspension. Of course, it's not a brand new thing. Uh, self-suspension has been around for a super long time in various forms. and But there just wasn't a lot of very accessible information, even videos, anything like that. So I started teaching classes more or less as a you know, let me share what took me hours of lab time to sort out and try to give you a head start. I'm a very big believer that there's no one true way. I don't teach anything that I do as the one true way. Uh, But, you know, just because there isn't only one right way doesn't mean there aren't some maybe less optimal ways. (laughs) So hopefully folks can learn from my mistakes, uh, which I'm very open about sharing. And be able to, you know, make all new mistakes, all new mistakes. That's my motto. And so I started teaching self-suspension and through that process really learned from, you know, my first, the first folks that I was teaching, learned through that process, learned about what works for people with all different, you know, body types uh, and abilities and honed the curriculum from there as this collaboration And as I was teaching the class, my handout for the class got longer and longer and longer and longer. And once it got to about 30 pages, I'm like, this really wants to be a book and not a handout at a certain point. So that was really how the book came about. One of the best criticisms I saw come up is somebody said, this is circus rope, not real rope. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I once got a critique, uh, one of my classes actually that I taught at a rope convention. Someone's like, well, I don't know. I expected shibari and what I got was circus rope. And I'm like, yes, yes, that is 
that is what I do. Uh, yes. And I try to be as clear in my blurbs, but you know, people don't always read blurbs for classes. I, yeah. I'm very, very clear about what it is that I do. And I think that there's just different approaches that work for different people. I love folks for whom Shibari style bondage works. I think that's wonderful. And they should do that over there. And I'll be doing my ridiculous circus shit over here, which also doesn't work for everyone. Some people, I put them in a puppet rig and they're like, what the fuck is this bullshit? I don't want to do this. And that's fantastic. Like different things work for different people. But then you get it to come together. You have an event in San Francisco, Twisted Windows, which is, uh, you're going back to what, quarterly now? So we were doing, it it varies a lot. Right now we're doing events at the Folsom Community Center, which is an awesome, awesome space that they're sort of building up. Uh, You know, these pandemic times have been so Mm -hmm. difficult, of course, for tons of different venues for performance art in general. And rebuilding from that, as well as my my flagship event is always Folsom Weekend. So that's Mm -hmm. what... I love the very most. Folsom is my favorite, the King Kai holidays. And so we do a booth at the Folsom Street Fair on Sunday. And this year we'll be doing a big performance event on Saturday, probably something as well on Friday. We're working out all the details, but, and I've been peppering some other smaller events throughout just as we're rebuilding. But it's, a, it's an event where it's a huge number of, of different kink performers, lots of rope, but lots of different styles of rope to come and see. And it's been very well received. You sell out. It's, you know, you've got people working their ways to try and get in the doors when there's no tickets. Um, so how does this differ than like a burlesque show versus a triple X show? Like, because there's, I went with a, a girlfriend of the last show who, called me up and said, oh, I got these really exclusive tickets. Have you heard of this event? And I started laughing. I'm like, I performed at it. I have no idea what to expect, what to wear. Like she was really afraid to go through that door. Oh my gosh. And she's a big part of the community in the city. So what should people expect when they go to one of these events? I think that these events are, it's, it's always much more intimidating in theory. I mean, I remember going out to my first dungeon party in San Francisco when Stefanos and I first moved here and just being, oh my gosh, what am I going to wear? What am I going to say? How am I going to act? And it was all very intimidating. And you get there and you're like, oh, okay, well, this is, you know, just humans. And uh, we're all somewhat, there's a saying that I really like that comes from a book about uh, social anxiety called How to Be Yourself, which has been a very helpful book. You know, shout out to that book for folks who that might be helpful for. And they said, uh, the roof is an introduction. And I think that that really applies to kink spaces. You know, we have, even just being in that space together, we obviously have a lot in common just from that starting point. And the roof is an introduction. People are there for a reason. And people generally, I think, are very friendly. And when they're not, it's generally because they're shy and awkward like me and not out of any anything other than that. So I think that just being open to that experience and 
one of the things I love about performance events is that it gives you, I don't do very well just going out to a bar and having some drinks and just talking with people. I don't know. I don't know what to do. But if I'm watching a performance, uh, we have a mix of ambient performances, spotlight performances. Uh, it gives you something to gather and some structure and things to watch. You can wander. There's lots of things happening simultaneously. So you can really curate your experience. If one scene isn't your cup of tea, there's you know, something going on in a different room. And so checking all of those things out and really discussing uh, discussing what you're seeing, I think gives a great icebreaker and kind of introduction as well. And you travel around the world to do kink events, performance events. It, it's part of it's part of who you are. And I don't think people realize that the erotic arts go beyond striptease and burlesque. So in your, you know, with what you've experienced and what you think, what is the bigger scope of erotic performance out there uh, that people are getting into? Because it's a huge circuit. Absolutely. There's, I have just coming up in a week and a half, Seattle Erotic Art Festival. I'm curating the bondage and aerial stage for them. And that event is incredible. There's installation art, there's interactive, there's all kinds of visual arts, paintings, photography, sculpture, and it's just a stunning event. And there's erotic art festivals all around the US, the world. So I think for me, my main focus has been on rope and bondage performance, as well as some aerial crossing into that. And I think you can do, obviously bondage, you can do as a scene. Uh, I think you can also, we create such amazing pictures and stories with our bodies, with the rope. And thinking of that as a really intentional art form, what stories can we tell, I think has been amazing. Whenever I'm building a performance, I'm always thinking, about the audience and the question that I ask myself, you're, you're on stage, you have an audience, how do you want them to feel? And whatever it is that you're doing, what, what's your intention and how can we evoke those emotions? So I find bondage to be a really interesting medium for that. And we also feature burlesque at the Twisted Windows events. We do all kinds of different erotic dance. I really like to have it be an opportunity where folks can explore different mediums and mix them in various ways uh, and really get avant-garde and weird with it. So when people are leaving your events, because you curate quite a few of them throughout the year and your own performances, what are the main feelings you want people to leave with? What's the experience you're trying to create? I hope it will be maybe a little turned on. Uh, I, you know, hope it's a little bit of something titillating. And I hope people will also think about what eroticism means in the context of what they've seen and what some of those different dynamics and intentions are. I hope folks, it opens people's minds to explore different types of eroticism and maybe, you know, think about, you know, gosh, I didn't know that that was going to be hot for me, but it kind of was. And getting intrigued in that way, I think is a big part of my mission, as well as just, you know, I just being entertained. I hope folks have a fun evening. I hope folks 
just as you would go to the ballet, go to the opera, you know, I, uh, one of the quotes I love to use in event promo was from Mir, the owner of Wicked Grounds, who said that Twisted Windows was like going to the opera for kinky people. And so I hope that we give that type of highly curated experience as well. In going to these events, because not only are you a performer at them, you get to see other artists perform and work. How has that changed your understanding and and your acceptance of your own body? It's been one of the things that I work on the most is representation and having, you know, if I only took people who applied to my event or people who are like, I should be on stage performing, I would have a whole bunch of cis het white male doms tying slim femme people, which is not at all what I want. We want a mix of different things. We want to show the awesomeness of all different types of bodies. And I think people have been very, very, very receptive to that. And so that I think has been really wonderful to me is, you know, if I'm posting images of the event, um, you know, I think really my most popular images a lot of times are things that you wouldn't necessarily see in a more mainstream source. You know, that's what people are really intrigued and really interested in. So I think that's been amazing to see. I, I think it's it's true because you can see where they gravitate and, and how you've curated these by looking at the pictures of the, the performers from each different event. You also have a day job. So, <laughs> and it's one thing, it, people tend to think if they know you're kinky, well, it must be your whole life. And, you know, you, you don't worry about paying bills and, and you just walk around, you know, half naked with a whip all day. Um, <laughs> how do you balance having a day job and being such a visible kink performer? So, I think for me, it is definitely a hobby and I kind of like it that way. I think it's very tricky once you try to turn kink into something that you're going to make a living at. It's very hard to make a living at anything kink related, sexuality related. And I don't love the hustle and sales aspects of this type of work. And I'm the worst when it comes to things like financial bookkeeping. There's things that I'm super organized about. If you want me to curate a performance list and organize uh, a set and do all that, that's awesome. I can, I've, I've got you, I've got spreadsheets for that. But if you want me to do my bookkeeping, I'm like, oh God, money, nightmare, hate it. Uh, so I'm very grateful that everything that I do, I'm focused on paying performers. Uh, I don't make any profit myself off of it. It's just a matter of building community. And I'm privileged to be in a position where I can do that because I do have a day job that pays my bills. So it's definitely a kind of process of, you know, thinking through uh, the different things that I do. Fortunately, yeah, I feel fortunate to live in San Francisco, which is a fairly accepting environment. Um, so, yeah. Do people, do, do your family and do you like your coworkers know what you do? Or is this much more being more of a hobby? Is it more quiet? Yeah, I mostly 
keep under wraps at my day job for sure. It's not something that I put out there in that sense. Uh, my family is all aware. Actually, my mother has both of my books and has been really very supportive. And I'm very grateful for that because, uh, you know, my family is a little more on the conservative side, but but they've been very sweet about the whole thing. They kind of discovered it by accident uh, a number of years ago. I didn't necessarily come out to them per se, but mm -hmm. I, uh, many years ago, logged into one of my email accounts on one of their computers. And I think they sort of traced some breadcrumbs and found a lot of things. Uh, but that said, they were then very accepting. Uh, I have three sisters who all know all the things, uh, all of them have been to one of my events at various times and none of them are into it themselves, but they're all very supportive. And that's been really great. That is, that is, I will say I, the last event I did with you, I, I got my sister to come because she's in San Francisco <laughs> and she walks in, she's like, Beck, I am not sure if I'm totally overdressed or underdressed for this event. It was like <laughs> for her, she's lived in San Francisco for decades, but she's like, holy shit, I never knew this existed. And it was this wonderful eye-opening thing for her. So that was great. Yeah. Um, you you also mentioned doing classes. You have another book out, creating creating captivating courses. And how did that one come about? Similar to tying and flying, uh, we were asked during during the pandemic, kind of near the start of the pandemic, by a friend of ours was teaching an online course for some local folks on just being a kink presenter and had kind of started a cohort of folks who were interested in starting to teach kink or sexes and asked us if we would come and do a three-hour webinar for this cohort of folks that they had. And my initial reaction was, gosh, three hours. I don't know. I've never taught this topic. You know, we've been teaching kink classes for a long time, but I don't know if I have three hours worth of material on this. And then I started writing an outline and I get 50 pages deep and I'm like, oh, <laughs> maybe I do have some things to say about this. Uh, and just did a whole lot of research. Uh, it was really my pandemic project when I couldn't be doing events, I couldn't be doing performances live, I couldn't teach live or teach in-person classes. Mm -hmm. And so in between working a whole lot at my vanilla job, I was just working on turning that class outline into a book. And it was again, just motivated, you know, being the content that I wanted to see in the world and just hoping that this would be helpful for other folks who are perhaps just starting their journey. The back half of that book is interviews with over a dozen uh, really diverse and fascinating voices in kink and sexuality education, including uh, folks like we have uh, Midori, we have uh, Carter Brule, we have just you know over a dozen ballerina goddess. Lee Harrington wrote the foreword for the book, and just uh, Emrys did an amazing interview lot of amazing folks. And so, you know, selfishly, that was kind of incredible because I got to talk with all of these folks and distill their wisdom into these interview chapters, which is, you know, I learned a ton writing the book. <laughs> and so it's been awesome to have that out there. 
That's wonderful. So for folks who are listening to this and thinking, hey, maybe I want to try some rope. Where do pe- How do people get started and how do you get started safely with this? I'm sure you get to ask that a lot. It's a great question. I, safety is so important. And I would say that there are these days quite a lot of resources online and quite a few things that are reopening and restarting that, you know, as folks feel is within their risk profile. I love to support the in-person venues. Locally, we have Box Body, which is a rope studio in Oakland. I'm heading there tonight teaching a self-tie jam. So that's a great space and very community focused. They teach a lot of safety information in all of their classes. There's also Wicked Grounds has a number of bondage classes, safety information there as well. There's a number of other local venues. Uh, But I would say starting just really self-tying, I think is an amazing way to start because you can learn a whole lot about your body, learning to distinguish from things that are warning signs of damage versus sensations that are intense, but not harmful is a super critical skill for being in bondage, whether that's tied by yourself or tied by someone else. And definitely self-bondage can be a great way to both learn about your body in rope and also to learn about those skills for creating bondage and tying. So I think there's books, resources on self-tying that can also be a great way to start. You bring up, I I had totally forgot to put this in the list of questions to ask you, but you bring up learning to distinguish between good types of pain and bad types of pain. You also teach a lot about the science of kink. And... So when you do that, what have you learned in teaching those classes? How do people process pain information differently once they've gotten into kink? Because I think there's a big learning curve that comes at the beginning of your experience in that and figuring out pain. So what have you learned in in all the teaching around that? Yeah, there's a concept that I really like called uh, benign masochism, which is a phrase that they use in psychology that refers to sensations that excite the body by making it respond to the perception of danger, while at the same time, the mind knows that it's safe. And this applies to anything from riding a roller coaster to watching a horror movie to even like watching a sad movie, a tearjerker kind of thing, uh, to like eating spicy foods, which is one of my other favorite examples of like a solo masochistic experience. Uh, And, you know, no one is born liking ghost peppers, right? This is something that you build over time. And as that same way, something like bondage, uh, it starts out particularly suspension, but this applies to floor ties as well. Uh, It feels very, it can be very intense for folks and your tolerance for that when you start can vary and how quickly your body gets used to that sensation can vary. But it's like when you put on a scratchy sweater and the sweater feels scratchy and then in a couple minutes, you don't feel it anymore, right? So it's that process of habituation and thinking through how that works in your body, kink can be somewhat similar in that, you know, the first time I was put in a hip harness suspension, I was like, holy shit, this sucks. All my weight is on three inches of rope that's around my hips and my legs. uh, And I need to come down right away. Uh, And these days I've been in hip harnesses so often I'm like, we, I can be in a hip harness for 20 minutes and it, it does not, I don't experience it as painful anymore because of that habituation process. So those are some of the things that I kind of keep in mind in terms of 
habituation, but also really being aware of those warning signs. You know, if I have something where I feel like a little sharp shooty pain and start to feel some numbness and tingling on my thigh, maybe it's not so intense that I couldn't power through it, but I definitely shouldn't because those are some warning signs of nerve damage, which is something that is, you know, really serious. I need to come down and evaluate my body. I've written a lot of articles about, you know, first aid for nerve damage, but being able to kind of distinguish those things. And when you're first starting, as they say in Alice in Wonderland, you can always have more, but you can't very well have less. I always encourage folks to start slow. You can always build up. You want to, you know, when you're first starting, leave the stage while the audience is still clapping. You know, you want to really start slow and always, you know, if, if the max that you think you can do is a 10, let's, let's start at a five or six. Let's just take it easy when we're first starting. Great advice. Great advice. You have a brilliant collection of leggings. Where do you acquire them? (laughs) I have tons of legging brands over the years that I've really loved uh, from Black Milk is a great brand. Uh, I think that uh, there's some, the cheap leggings from Amazon, uh, first off, very problematic in lots of different ways, right? So I try to buy from you know, vendors, Etsy, local folks, people who are, you know, crafts people who are making them in an ethical way. So I think all of those things are super important. And I just, I love tying over leggings. It makes ties to me a lot more sustainable and also just, I have very, um, on my lower body, my skin is a little bit more uh, flexible, pinchable. So like tight leggings to me helps keep everything in place and make things a lot more sustainable for me. So love my leggings. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're wonderful costume additions too. When you do stuff on stage, they're absolutely brilliant. So if folks want to find you, if they want to buy your books, if they want to go to your classes, read your websites, where do they go? Selfsuspend.com is my self-suspension site, and that has links to the book, links to a lot of different videos. And I also have stefanosandshay.com is my site with my partner, Stefanos, that lists all of our classes, has a calendar of our upcoming events. And twistedwindows.com is for my performance event, Twisted Windows. So those are kind of some starting places. I also have bondagesafety.com, which gives a lot of information about uh, intuitively enough bondage safety and things like nerve damage, uh, warning signs, how to get started, negotiation and health basics. So I have a lot of online presence, although I loathe updating websites. So I'm not sure how that all comes to be comes to pass, but... Thank you so much for being on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Appreciate chatting with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks. Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. If you like Fat Chicks and you are looking for other podcasts with great conversations, you might want to check out Chopping It Up with Ungayo, now on most streaming services. Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. 
Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. This has been an episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Fat Chicks on Top is produced and hosted by Auntie Vice. Audio production is by A Serious Production. You can find all information about Fat Chicks on Top at fatchicksontop.com and follow Auntie Vice at Auntie Vice on most social media.